I would love to do, if I had the talent, I would love to do this. I wouldn't even mind if I didn't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm really, I'm really having a blast. And the, uh, people tell me what they like about it. Is it, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm giving them a, a visual diary. Like they could watch where I am or feel like they're there through my eyes, you know, um, that I can show them like the guy taking out the garbage as well as the celebrity speaking at the podium. Yeah, so. I love the mix. I love yeah. the mix. I think it's yeah, thank you. And, and that perspective you don't get because you can watch the celebrity on TV live, but behind the scenes, that's an exclusive point of view. And, you know, as, as a teacher, as a cultural ambassador, as a public speaker, an author, uh, and of course, an award-winning cartoonist, uh, the, the voice of freedom of expression, how has all of that changed given you just talked about mobile technology you talked about digital and social has that enabled you to express yourself in a more agile in a more with more context now that you can draw on the go it definitely can i draw my iphone sometimes just using my finger on this so it's like if i'm not in my studio i can respond to the world in an instant with, with a drawing and that is is really exciting to me um, so digitally, for me, it's been an, a, a, a hugely expanding experience. But I think we, and so it's changing how cartoons are received around the world. As we know, they can cause death and destruction, as well as bring people together. Because I know a lot of international cartoonists, and they're my friends now, and I love that. Um, mm -hmm. But certain kinds of humor do not translate across borders. Some some humor does. So it's a complicated thing. But it's so it's a mixed bag of, of positive and negative in terms of can do given the political climate and some of the tragedies that we've experienced uh, especially in in the in the news industry um, uh, abroad uh, uh, very emotional process I, I would assume of, of capturing the the sentiment and the heart and soul and the feelings of of, 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 uh, of the moment. Can you talk to us about as you're drawing? You know what goes through your mind, to, where you where you know you have to be mindful of the different cultural and points of view. Yeah. Well, that's a longer conversation, Bala. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, two things pop into mind. Um, when I first started drawing, I was always a political cartoonist. But when I started doing more uh, political cartoons on the web for different sites. I initially thought, well, I can't draw about women, women's rights in other parts of the world because I don't live there. I don't know what it's like to be there. I don't know what it's like to be a woman in Afghanistan because I am not there. I'm a, a privileged white woman in America. But then I tried to figure out a way to make a connection between women where we have, and what I decided was that I had a responsibility to, to talk about women's rights globally because we, have, we are connected on, on some level, uh, mm -hmm. all women. Um, so that's one thing I, uh, I think that answered your question. Um, but, and it was a difficult decision to, to, to do that. And so I try to push my, my creativity a little bit more um, to, to say things that, are, that mean something to me and, uh, and to take into consideration everybody else's opinion, if, if possible. It's, it's, it's you, you, masterfully, you masterfully use humor to deliver the... the, the, the Thanks. Answer. Yeah. It's, it's not just humorous. It's sometimes snarky. It's sometimes short and punchy. It's sometimes insightful. It's sometimes you look at it and you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of wit behind this. Thank you. It's exciting when we see this, right? I mean, it, 
I mean, we use, I mean, at our conference every year, we use graphical recorders, right? And we do that as well just to capture the moment. But, you know, they, they tend to be, and we love them, they tend to be more objective. It'd be funny if they were much more pointed and snarky. You know <laughs> so, what? When I first started doing live drawing, it was for, for the Cartooning for Peace organization that I belong to. It's a French group uh, that do global things. They do a conference every year in Avignon, and they have cartoonists, like four of us international cartoonists, come and draw. Uh, on paper, actually, and, and they have an, one of those, what do they call the projectors that goes over a piece of paper. And so as the, as the attendees, the conference people are talking about serious cultural issues, us cartoonists are off in the corner drawing these humorous cartoons, not just live drawing of what we're seeing, but making light. So they'll be having a serious conversation, all of a sudden the whole room erupts in laughter because they see this cartoon that's being projected. The French love cartoons, of course. So. It's a great vision of the serious and important conversations, but, but let's try to make, make it light every, every so often. And that's what I try to do with my work no, and my public, my public speaking too. So. No, no, that's great stuff. And, and Mark Gore Thanks. and his organization over there have done, done great work in terms of uh, being cartooning for peace. Um, when you're thinking about, um, you know, this, uh, in 2014, you worked on something very cool um, with another New Yorker cartoonist, which you can tell us more about in a bit. Uh -huh. um, but tell us more about cartoon marriage. There's something interesting behind that and, and a little bit of how Jennifer Garner pay, played a role in that. Well, uh, about almost 30 years ago, I got married to to another New Yorker cartoonist, Michael Maslin. <laughs> and uh, we both met through The New Yorker. We were both cartooning at the time. And uh, after a couple of years of being married and having kids, we thought, you know, it might be an interesting book, Cartoon Marriage. So we, we both of us have had a lot of, we've drawn a lot of cartoons about marriage, not just our own. Because usually your, your work is not so specific. It's more general. You try to find things that are, specific to you, but also can apply to other people's lives. So that's what our, we did this book called Cartoon Marriage and it had cartoons about marriage and had um, sections about our particular marriage, our, our specific marriage as well. Um, and uh, Jennifer Garner has, has a production company and, and she was, she and she was married to Ben at the time, Ben Affleck. Uh, they really wanted to produce it. So uh, it got very close to being picked up as a television sitcom and unfortunately um there are a lot of comedies i'm told there are a lot of comedies being pitched that year and ours got very close to being picked up as a sitcom but didn't make the cut so we were really disappointed but you know that's life <laughs> We can follow your, we can follow your husband at Ink Spills News. It's a pretty cool yes. to do as well oh, yeah. on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. So so very much. Okay. This may be a hard question. Maybe asking a parent, you know, about a favorite child. But is there a favorite <laughs> cartoon that you like? Your all time favorite, and maybe it's your first. I don't know. But but and can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, your first cartoon in the New York is always really yeah your baby, but. Uh, uh, it's not really my favorite cartoon. Um, gosh, Val. <laughs> Sorry, I'm asking. <laughs> uh, I don't know because I, I have a variety of types of cartoons. You know, I've got I've got silly cartoons like. Um, oh, here's one that might re resonate now. It was published in the New Yorker during uh, the Clinton administration. It was one of my political cartoons for them. And there's a man coming into the restaurant. Uh, waiters coming. He's ho uh, he's holding a tray, and on the tray is a, a man is sitting on the tray, and he says to the people at the table prosecutor 
So <laughs> it was during the Clinton time when he was being special, you know, being investigated all the time. So that's that's wow. one of my favorites. But I also do some serious stuff. material too. the next three and a half years. So. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be too busy. We don't want you burned out. Yeah. Hey, tell us about tell us tell us about your role uh, as, as as an educator, right? I mean, this this these set of episodes really has been talking about teaching and learning. You do that mm -hmm. with your vis with visuals and cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, tell about being an educator at Vassar before mm -hmm. um, when you were doing that. You had a really cool class that was uh, super highly rated. I think one of my friends may have taken the class. I won't yeah. say who and indict her. Cartoons in American <laughs> Culture and Women's Studies. Uh -huh. And I was asking her and she said she said that that was like the most fun she had because uh, it was a chance to express herself in a way um, that she never had before. And she was a horrible artist. <laughs> and, she, and she learned how to do that and it's something wow. that with her so but uh yeah I mean, what motivates you to share that and share those kind of experiences well i uh the, the, the teaching ambassador came about because i wrote a book called funny ladies which is a, about the history of women cartoonists at the new yorker and i went and spoke at vassar and from there they invited me to teach in the women's studies department which was fantastic uh and i was not trained as an educator for college level, but I looks so like, cause I learned, so I learned a huge amount. Um, but what's great about teaching, teaching with cartoons, this is actually a history of women's studies. This is not a drawing class, this one. Um, cause I used cartoons, not just mine, but others cartoons to point out, um, uh, everyday things that, the students may not have thought about. Like you, you could give them a, an academic article about um, sexism, right? About about something, the patriarchy. And they can get it, they'll, they'll read it and understand it. But if you show them, uh, visually show them cartoons that, because humor softens people a little bit um, and, it, and it lets them relax into the subject and they'll also maybe recognize something in their own lives that they see uh, and can recognize the problem. So sometimes my cartoons, I like to get at issues in the in the culture that that I think are wrong. And if you draw them, people might see them more easily than if you just try to write about it uh, in an academic uh, piece. There was one. Yeah, there was one that was fun. That was uh, you wrote something. I think it was something with uh, women in industrial design. Where are my ladies at? <laughs> so. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so that was one that was fun. But uh, yeah, but but you know, when you're sharing and when you're doing that, I mean, do you help people understand how to bring not just the visualization, the technology, um, the different points of view that you have together? Like what 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 inspires folks behind that? Uh, I understand you quite rephrase that. Well, um, how do you bring technology and design and, you know, your points of view together as, as you're teaching folks, right? Because it sounds like you're, every, every cartoon, every image, every visual is really a, a lesson and that you're trying to give people an insight to that they might mm -hmm. not have seen before. Mm -hmm. Like, how's, what's the thought process behind that? How do you get mm -hmm. people to get there? Because you, you do it so succinctly. Like, it's Thank more you. succinct than Twitter. So. Well, I, ha I, have to, I have to sort of explain that I... I um, when I've taught, it was it was not teaching how to cartoon. I find that a difficult thing to do, um, unless they're I'm trying to work with uh, elementary school age kids. Um, I know people do it, and I respect them for it. But I I have trouble teaching somebody at the adult level or, or college level to actually draw cartoons. So my teaching at Vassar was not uh, artistic. It was more just right, uh, right. I understand teaching, that. Yeah. 
So, you're you're um, helping people understand women's history through cartoons, from what I understand, right. Yeah. right? As opposed to teaching people cartoons, but you did it in a way, from what I understood, you did it in a way that was so impactful because of the way you thought through the issues, and you made it very succinct for people to understand complex concepts. That's, I guess that's true, yeah. And, and, I don't and really how do you do that internally? It. Because you, you do it naturally. You do it naturally. How do you it's walk that years of Years of practice. Um, like anything else. Babe Ruth, how he swung for home runs. They, yeah. they just did it. They just did it. I mean, it's just oh, one of those no. things like, this isn't any like Malcolm Gladwell book. We did it like 20,000 times and became experts. <laughs> I mean, there's a natural gift here is what you're saying. So I don't know. I, I think it can be learned, but um, I've just been doing it a long time. And there's, uh, it's, it, there's, no, there's no set method, particularly. Mm -hmm. And every cartoonist has their own method. Uh, for me, it's uh, an awareness of, of society and culture and keeping my, keep lis listening all the time. Like I keep up with the news. I like the news. I, my cartoons are often based on the news. So I keep, I keep track of that so I don't miss the thread of what's going on. And so, and I make notes, I actually do use paper still, <laughs> but I make notes on my phone too about words or uh, ideas or trends that are happening in the culture. And sometimes I might use them, sometimes I might not. Um, but mix and remix so well. Right? Yeah, oh, that's thank part you. of it. Like you, you pull a concept from one area, which might be like something in politics, and you take something for society, and then you mash them up. That's a great. Like, I, that's a great part point. of the fun, right? I mean, I, that's what I do. Sometimes I use a big piece of paper on my table, and I have like different words, different images, and all of a sudden you go like, oh, right, that mixes together, that works, or you're not even sure it works. You put it out there. I think that's what I love about Twitter. It gives me not only access to instant news, but I get different perspective all at the same time. Um, my yeah. final question for you: I have some common, you know, mutual friends in Whitney Johnson and Deb Schofield and and uh, yeah. Kaplan, and these folks all inspire me. Who inspires you? What what are they? Thought leaders or folks that you work with or friends who who inspire you to do what you do? Um. Well, I'm thinking of a couple people. Uh, since I, well, I didn't know you were going to ask me that, but you know, <laughs> all my uh, questions are coming. Uh, from <laughs> no, no, people have asked me that before, who, and and I think of somebody from my past who has inspired me because of her uh, quiet tenacity, and, mm -hmm. and that's Jane Goodall. And then she has nothing to do with my field, but wow. um, she just pushed and pushed quietly made inroads into a male field and made changes and made discoveries on her own um, because she loved what she did. And I, I find her an inspiration and, and she's still working. Um, uh, yeah. But other than that, I also, I also love, I'm inspired by women comedians, many of them, you know, they're, they're envelope and they're, they're putting themselves out there um, and, and, and are being very, are very vulnerable by putting themselves out there. Two, two areas that come to mind right away. But there's so many people that inspire me. I love, like you, Vala, I love Twitter. and I love being in touch with people all over the world because they, um, uh, I'm amazed at, how, at what people are doing. Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much, Liza. We are oh, talking to Liza Donnelly, writer and cartoonist, New York, New York Times, CBS News. You can follow her at L-I-Z-A-D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. And more importantly, someone who's a thought leader, who's definitely a cultural pioneer, and more importantly, someone that's capturing moments in time succinctly. So thanks a lot for being on the Thank show. Thank you. Can I just say one more thing? Yes. I was thinking about this before our conversation that 
it's it's so ironic to me that I'm on a show called Disrupt TV because I've when I was young I never thought of myself as a disruptor, but I think I always have been. Yes. It's just a different kind of disruptor, and I'm very proud that you've invited me on and, and call me a disruptor because I I think we have to find all find our own way to disrupt whatever that is. Yeah, in, in a good way. In a good way. Disruption. Yeah, in a good, in a good way. way. That's it's a, yes, You're exactly. A disruptor. You're a disruptor in an incredibly positive and inspiring way, and. Uh, we, uh, I've learned so much from you, and I, and I thank you for the show. Well, likewise. Thank you. Happy Friday. Bye-bye. Yeah. Wow. It is Friday, and we are among educators and disruptors. Who do we have next? <laughs> by the way, my ultimate goal is for you, you, Ray and I, for both of us to get drawn by, uh, by Liza. So we've got to find a way. I know. I should have done it when I was on the CBS Sunday show of Rita yeah. Braver, but I think it was before she joined. To the, Emmys, <laughs> to the Oscars to, to, to get that chance. But to the Oscars talk, of technology. Talk about a disruptor at the highest level in, 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 in his institution. We have Scott Paulsifer, president of Western Governors University, the nation's first and largest competency-based university. And Scott's responsible for leading all academic, operational, and organizational functions. Both Ray and I had a privilege of, of listening to Scott at a, a higher ed summit in Austin a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, incredible, incredible thought leader. Scott blends a, a personal drive for making a difference in lives of individuals and families through education and a passion for technology powered innovation. Um, at Western Governors University, he's driving continuous innovation to improve student outcomes by focusing on rapidly advancing curriculum quality, new faculty models, data-driven learning, and uh, different cost models. He's a big thinker, and you'll hear that in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, before coming to Western Governors University, Scott had more than 20 years of leadership experience in technology-based, customer-focused businesses, including Amazon, Sterling Commerce, which is now IBM, and two successful startups uh, as well. So again, a mix of entrepreneurial startup to some of the largest, biggest, most successful companies in the world. Another must follow on Twitter. You can follow Scott at, at, at Scott P-U-L, S-C-O-T-T-P-U-L. Welcome, Scott, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Bala. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Ray. Hey, good to see you. Welcome on board. You know, you know, Western Governors University, WGU, they, you guys are the disruptor in higher education. I mean, you basically started, you know, flat fee pricing, competency-based model education. Talk about CBE and why it's so different in the education market and, and why is the attraction, especially to adult students? Yeah, the, the, it truly is actually the foundation of how uh, WGU came about. I think we started was simply the principle that, in fact, everyone can learn and, and trying to figure out how on that principle, how do we increase access and improve quality of education? And the fundamental idea was simply that if you keep the standards for learning constant and you let the time vary depending on the individual, that in fact, it can dramatically change the uh, the nature of higher education. I think one of the other core principles about WGU is that uh, like Amazon, if you will, in e-commerce and, and retail in general and so many other places, is that WGU puts the student at the center of everything that we do. And so as we thought about even competency-based education, we thought simply about if you were to take the entire model of higher education and center it all around the student, how would you do it differently? And that has led to so much of not just the competency-based education design, but how we develop our curriculum, how we design our faculty roles, how do we utilize technology and everything else. And so um, that is probably uh, one of the hallmarks of WGU 
as well as the competency-based education model. You know, what I found interesting is we had uh, hundreds of uh, executives leading their, uh, their, their institutions, colleges, and universities at, at the summit, and, and yet I, I rarely heard them talk as much as you did about business model innovation, mm-hmm. not just technology innovation, but business model innovation. Can you talk about some innovations that you see in higher, higher education that's a combination of not only just you know, advancing technology and use of technology, but also thinking about new business models? Yeah, I think uh, one of the core points around that student centricity starts simply with the the business process of teaching, if you will. I think uh, to some degree, I would argue that there are two fundamental purposes of higher education to advance knowledge, which there are over 200 uh, research based universities in the United States. But the other fundamental purpose of higher education is to transfer knowledge. And when we thought about the concept of teaching and the transfer of knowledge from those who have it to those who need it to be successful, we effectively started thinking about, well, not all students learn the same way, not all of them come with the same knowledge, not all of them learn at the same rates. So when you think about teaching, what are all the other facets that you need to bring to bear in the process of teaching? And some of that uh, directly is, are things like, how does technology like gamification, like uh, microterming, like uh, notifications and nudges and things like that, how do those factor into how a student, how the ad- adaptation of the teaching itself can be more individualized? Another process model itself is we just completely uh, looked at the teaching model and said, it's maybe a little too much for one faculty member to do it all. What if we actually had faculty that designed and developed the curriculum we had separate faculty who were the subject matter experts who taught specific courses, but we also had faculty who do all of the augment instruction, the guidance, the counseling, the planning, the project management, all these other aspects that in fact are so critical to the cognitive development of a student. And so that was an example of a teaching process where we said, you know what, when you look at the, the process of transferring knowledge differently, how would you approach it? And I think that same could be applied to how we think about admissions processes, how we think about evaluation and assessment, how we think about proctoring. You know, if you consider the fact that we have 80,000 students who entirely are online, well, none of them are going to a, uh, to a testing center where they're going to sit and watch a proctor walk up and down the aisles. You know, no, they're all doing this online. And so if you were to proctor exams when students are taking their courses wherever they may be, at their home, in a Starbucks building, on a military base somewhere, you're going to think about testing and proctoring differently. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and one of the interesting things is you get some interesting courses online. I mean, you just launched a bachelor's in cybersecurity and information assurance. Yeah. I think this has got to be hot. I mean, everyone's looking to figure out how to safeguard infrastructure and secure data. And, and you do this all um, with, you know, not just the way you actually deliver the course training. Talk a little bit how people sign up. I mean, they can be anywhere, right, to be able to uh, get access to not just mentors and courses. So how does it work? What's the underlying stuff behind it? Yeah, the reality is, is that we virtualize the entire thing. So not uh, to your point is the admission process itself. If you think about how you discover the programs are available at WGU and then you start applying for admission to those programs, um, all of that is technology enabled. All the, you know, everything is the student starts the journey into uh, their program. Um, that journey is the first of many in which we're trying to discover how this individual particularly learns, how they progress, develop, et cetera. Um, I think the other key thing is you think about the teaching that has to happen now virtually. 
So you need a multi-mode, multi-device communications model that allows this kind of individualized, regular faculty-student interaction. So you completely change from a fat, you know, professor on stage in an auditorium to, nope, just like this. You and I are going to have a one-on-one -on -one interaction, and we're going to bring up you know, virtual content and talk about the course materials, or we're going to you know, go through scenarios and simulations live utilizing the uh, you know, internet and one-to-one uh, -one engagement that we can have. Um, and so that whole underpinning to us uh, is ensuring that uh, these interactions are now enabled by technology that uh, distance is not a factor in how it occurs. And so what you might uh, not realize is that while we have uh, over 3,000 faculty at WGU, uh, none of those faculty, well, I shouldn't say none, but uh, a very, very, very small percentage right. of them are co-located anywhere. They're all working from their remote locations, and they're connecting with 80,000 students, wherever those students may be. And it's providing a richer, more engaging, more individualized experience in a way that you couldn't do in a residence-based model. And to really experience that, I mean, if you go online and you just click on one of those areas, I think it was like a better way to learn. I mean, it walks you through it. It says, hey, when do you want to graduate? How much time do you have? Like, hey, what do you know? Right. Uh, you know, what competencies do you have? You know, how fast do you want to do something? And, and you help them build the course based on who they are. Right? It's like personalized yeah, education that's out right. of the box. So. It's exactly. The course plan is definitely going to be reflective of how you learn individually, what knowledge you bring to the table. And to your point is one of the notions of, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense actually to have then credit hour-based pricing. You're like, shouldn't we actually uh, uh, provide a more of a subscription-based model where there's just a flat tuition per six-month term and you can learn as much as you can in that six-month period and uh, that's where, you know what, as soon as I start seeing my course plan and the materials and where I am already able to leverage existing knowledge I have from work or otherwise, I can progress pretty quickly through certain courses and I can give my time and attention to other courses. Um, I often joke about the fact when I showed up to my physical science class my freshman year in college and the professor said basically that your grade is going to be an average of your three best midterms or just your final. And I raised my hand and said, you know, somewhat uh, snarkly, snarkingly, if you will, that said, so I don't have to come to class? He's like, and he just repeated that your grade will be this. And so I, I never went to class. I'm like, well, I can learn this on my own. And, and I went and took the final and I was great, you know. And so that's, that was like, a, I didn't know it then. You the final the first day? <laughs> I, yeah, that's why I should have asked. I'm like, could you, you know, could you just give me that test now and I'll see how I do it. Um, but that was my first experience, if you will, with competency-based education, that uh, I was already you know, progressed in my competency and the mastery of those competencies that were necessary for that course. And that is the model where you let the time vary, but you keep the standard for learning constant. And the student is in control of uh, you know, how, they, uh, how quickly they can progress. It is paced, meaning that they work closely with their faculty to make sure they're progressing as they need to. But if you can accelerate through some, you do so. If you need more time and attention on others, uh, you get it. So, sure, sure. You know, I I, I envision you like uh, Billy Bean in Moneyball. I don't know why, but I think a <laughs> guy who comes from a technology background, and not just technology, from Amazon, where they're filing patents for you know warehouse balloon warehouses in the air and drones landing on streetlights and. You know, some of them have 60,000 active robots in their warehouses. So a super tech-savvy president who's going to come in here and just break things and challenge the conventional, this is the way we've been doing it, statements left and right. What attracted you to WGU? And is that vision correct, that you're essentially a scene in Moneyball challenging <laughs> traditional thinking? 
Yeah, um, uh, I do love baseball. I will say that. That is uh, one thing I love is I do love baseball. But uh, I think there is, a, at the core of what we do is truly our purpose is to change the lives of individuals and families. And I still know uh, and absolutely believe that there's no single bigger, single uh, more impactful catalyst in helping individuals change their lives than education. Um, and it is proven, proven time and time and again that, in fact, the more information and knowledge, et cetera, you possess, the more uh, confidence you have about your potential for opportunity, about your impact in the world, about the opportunities that are available to you. Um, and what we also know, for example, we say individuals and families because uh, when uh, the children of a parent who is also a college graduate, they are 10 times more likely to go to college and also attain their, uh, their degrees. And so... Uh, we know that this education is changing the lives of uh, our graduates. And that purpose, um, it's hard for me to say that uh, that uh, I, even with all the startups I've done and Amazon is amazing that it is, uh, when I can come to work every day and know that what we do is absolutely changing the lives of these individuals that uh, are at WGU, that's what drew me to it. Awesome. Now, having said that, as you highlighted in the, uh, in the kind of short intro, for technology and when I started thinking about how it's already disrupting uh, uh, higher education and I started thinking more broadly about the higher education space in general I can't think of a sector that has been more you know what uh, founded in these roots that were put in centuries and centuries ago in the US you know you go and walk Harvard's campus I am a Harvard graduate um, and you walk the campus and you see the founding, oh, 1640 or whatever the word, you're like. You rub John Harvard's foot. Yeah, you rub John Harvard's foot. It's nice and polished off, you know. And, and you realize, like, the model we have for higher education, this notion of the ivory tower. You're like, hey, we have all the knowledge. And so everyone should flow into the ivory tower and we can part unto your knowledge. You're like, that's not a technology-enabled model. And so I think even Clayton Christensen noted at the summit that we are at, they said, behind all good innovations is technology. That's an absolute, it doesn't mean technology by itself is an innovation, but innovation and disruption doesn't really happen without technology. And I think that's what uh, I recognize with WGU, this opportunity to leverage technology and all the software and, and development that we can do to drive a different way of doing things. But to your vision of, uh, of Moneyball, um, what you do get when you enable the entire end-end student journey with technology, what do you get? You get a lot of information and data about what's actually driving outcomes for students. Yeah. And when you have that data, guess what? You make much better decisions about how you design curriculum, how you modify processes, how you change faculty models to adapt to different student types, how you utilize microterms and, and gamification, a variety of other things. The reality is, is that it dramatically increases the quality of the education that the student's going to experience. And that is something that we do at a scale that no other university can right now because I often like to highlight, not only do we have 80,000 plus students, we're enrolling 4,000 plus every month. Wow. And so we have a huge opportunity to just test all these, all these theories of learning and actually realize which ones are driving outcomes. It's getting the students on base. That's awesome. That's right. Yeah, singles, singles and doubles, baby. That's how you get the runs. Yeah. Four thousand a month. Wow. Four thousand a month. He's not kidding, man. This is mass. You're doing like massive training here. I mean, this is like folks, and you're giving folks an opportunity to reskill. I mean, if you think about what's happening in the job market or what's happening in training, I mean, you know, lots of people have a lot of skill sets, but they they were never valued. 
right? So the competency-based model right. actually takes into account and helps folks, especially as they're transitioning careers, looking into different opportunities, is, is pretty cool. Now, that's the heart of this new business model. I mean, where do you see this role of lifelong education playing out? Yeah, I think what you just hinted at is what we do know is this, that certain skills and competencies, they only have a certain shelf life. I often think about the what's the shelf life of a, you know, knowing how to code in a certain programming language. We're like, well, today it may be three to five years. Well, that's true also in certain other skill sets that exist in any number of different sectors. What we do know is continuous learning is vitally important to our success long term. And so having a much more accessible, affordable, um, you know, uh, technology-enabled model by which we can continuously access the skills that we want to advance our uh, capabilities in, our competencies in. That is something that our model and, you know, competency-based, technology-enabled, online, distance-based, that that is going to make uh, this continuous learning so much more accessible than it was previously. The other thing I would highlight is that we absolutely believe in infusing general education to everything that we have. When I say general education, what am I really talking about? The most transferable skills that uh, we that we all are looking for in our employees and the people we work with, it's critical reasoning capabilities, it's written and oral communication, it's influencer and leadership skill sets. Those things are highly, highly transferable. So we also believe infusing that general education into our programs is going to be vital for enabling lifelong learning. But getting back to the core point is when you think about uh, to some degree, if you took rather than a degree, you're going to have some kind of micro-credential. Well, how quickly can I access the learning that's necessary to achieve that micro-credential? And you want to be able to do that in a distance space, not campus space. You want to do that with a relatively cost-effective uh, cost and affordable way. You want to ensure that that credential is highly credible and respected and regarded. So I think it, this is changing the nature by which individuals can access the ongoing learning for them to advance in whatever career track they pursue. That is awesome. That is really cool. So we are seeing, I mean, we're seeing the shift. I mean, not just in terms of how people learn, but you see the way that people are trying to transform. Um, are corporations like pitching in and helping you with like tuition or with scholarships? Because I see a lot of different announcements from all different places. But yeah. are people just saying, hey, this is the future of our, you know, corporate program. I need a, you know, master's in IT or master's in, you know, or teaching, college of teaching. How do I join that? What do people have to do? Okay. Yeah, the, uh, there's a variety of different ways in which they can participate, I would say, is that I think the employers, and uh, they're getting involved simply even in the design of the programs and curriculum. Why? Because they know that even the graduates coming out, they aren't fully ready in all the skills that they want in their employees that they're hiring. And so in our case, we have very active advisory councils and participants from employers from the different sectors. They're directly influencing the competencies that are designed as the learning objectives into our programs. But more importantly, they need to make sure that all the employees that they have are very aware of these options that are available to them to get access to the degrees and credentials that they want to pursue in the first place. And so that itself, in terms of partnering, you know, we have hundreds of partnerships directly with employers and with community colleges and others that said, listen, they need to know that there are paths and options that uh, don't require them to uh, go to a very rigid, inflexible model that doesn't meet their needs. And and you see that in the growth of just the online and distance ed. Like it's growing 11 plus percent a year in terms of total number of adults and individuals going into online distance programs. I think it's over now 6 million of the 20 million students in the system are doing it through online models. And I think the employers are recognizing that they can be a very effective way by which uh, their employees are continuing to be trained and, and learn in advance 
uh, in ways that they didn't before. So I think the employers themselves have to be a part of bringing more and more adults into the higher education system because that's how you get the, uh, the what's the number overall? 65% of the future jobs are going to require adults with this post-secondary credentials. Well, to do that, the employers need to make sure that these options are accessible to them, they're affordable, they're contributing to the, you know, the tuition reimbursement programs, they're contributing to the actual curriculum themselves uh, itself. So I think there's a variety of ways in which employers are kind of waking up to the future of education. Terrific insights. Thank you so much, Scott, for uh, being our guest. Uh, hopefully you consider coming back. Uh, tremendous, yes. a tremendous insight. Thank you, sir. Yeah, and you can follow Absolutely. Scott. We're talking to President of Western Governors University, our friend Scott Pulsifer, S-C-O-T-T-P-U-L. Follow on Twitter for some interesting hired ed insights. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Very, very cool. We've got higher ed and educators all over the board, and we've got someone very special coming from a very special place. Who is that? We are delighted to have, in my humble opinion, one of the top most innovative CIOs, not just in higher ed, one of the most innovative CIOs, period, Michael Matthews, CIO of Oral Roberts, joining us. Uh, Michael has over 24 years of experience, although you can't tell he looks like he's 35, as a level <laughs> IT executive bringing creative solutions, really creative solutions that, that, that add value to end users of technology and business process management. He's a combination of our first two guests, a masterful storyteller and a technologist who's passionate about education. Mike has held positions as Chief Information Officer, General Manager, uh, Chief Strategist for Innovation, Business Development Officer. He's a teacher, he's a Vice President of Academic Services. Um, in, in, in the past few years, he has had major national initiatives that have earned uh, two invitations to the White House. Uh, there's an upcoming invitation as well where he's gonna talk about emerging technology. He's a speaker at the National Education Conference, National Summit for US Academic Policy. And, and again, a thought leader that, that, that folks seek out all the way from the White House to you know, global initiatives. You can follow him, Michael, on Twitter at Innovate4EDU, I-N-N-O-V-A-T-E, the number four, and then capital E-D-U. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. What a privilege to be with you today. Yes, and please share with us, where are you today? Actually, good question. I'm in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, which is home to the supercomputer uh, through Seymour Cray, and it's a delight to be here. So hopefully my video turns out the best because <laughs> we have supercomputer access and good he's, bandwidth. He's got the best bandwidth, right? Yeah. For those who don't know, Cray Research is the ones who built some of the most awesome supercomputers in the history um, of uh, technology. So hey, you know, when you were appointed as CIO, um, not so not far long, not so long ago, you received a broad mandate, right, to globalize education across the board through technology. How does that work? I mean, you've got some cool things along the way. We'll talk about those, but really, you know, that mandate you're transforming education at at a very very innovative university. You know, great question, Ray. You know, and it really comes back to six simple things. Number one, vision. In the medical, metaphysical realm of life, vision does matter. But a singular vision helps all the more. So our president, Dr. William Wilson, has just been phenomenal casting a vision of globalization. And in fact, three years ago, that's why I came to Oral Roberts University, was that single mandate. The vision, the board of trustees supported that they funded it. So the vision is number one. Number two is passion. Hey, we can have a passion for education, but do we have a passion for people? 
when there's 7 billion people in the world and I only have 100,000 coming to me every month, big deal. 7 billion people that can be reached with digital electrons that travel at the speed of light around the world. And when you have that vision matched with passion, the next thing can happen, which is I call the digital transformation index that we came up with. Over a three year period, how are we more digital than we were the year before and the year before? And in fact, it was you, Ray, who challenged me to say, how many Fortune 500 companies have shut down because they never understood digitalization? And so we have 26 measures that we use to tie passion to vision, but prove that we are truly transforming the digital era for education and technology. And then the fourth thing is simplification. If I can simplify things, I can multiply things. So for instance, I can take this digital card that you're seeing here, hold up behind my smartphone and you'll see an ear come to life. Okay, Ooh. that same ear is no longer a learning object, it's a learning environment, but what if I allowed students now to print it on a 3D printer? Around the world though, not just because they're on my- he, he just pulled the Marco Tempest on us, holy crap. <laughs> there you go. Uh, went from physical to digital to metaphysical all at once. So that's, a you can turn the, <laughs> that's freaking awesome. Yeah, there you go. Hey, who needs books behind them when it's all, you know? <laughs> And the vision and the passion and the plan, right? Uh, there you go. But uh, the, the fourth thing really is, or fifth thing is vendors. We needed to find vendors who could align with the global vision. Hey, no one's an island. Uh, we have a great president. We have a great provost. We have a great CFO, a great chief operating officer, pretty good CIO, but we need vendors to help us. And so we pick world-leading vendors to make sure we can reach the globe. And then the last thing is, who's willing to do the things nobody else wants to do? You know, it's one of the successes in life. I just picked up from somebody not that long ago was, you know, you can be successful if you'll do the things other people won't do. And they're generally the unfavorable things. They're not, they don't have lipstick on them. They don't have gloss on them. They're just the difficult things. And so through those six things, that mandate has already been accomplished through our global learning center. And what a privilege to reach the world in such a, uh, a new fashion and way. That's terrific. So, Michael, as a CIO, what is required today to be successful in higher ed? We heard from Scott Pulsifer. We heard from an award-winning cartoonist. That, so there's an element of storytelling and inspiring and educating, breaking things, being disruptive, thinking outside the box. And, and, and uh, by the way, I just described you. But can you kind of explain, you know, how do you, how do you leverage talent and culture and process and perhaps lastly technology to really move the needle forward? You know, I, I think it's having an ear to hear where energy's at and where it's not. Meaning, where's negative energy taking away from the lifeblood of a vision? And, you know, uh, Admiral John Ryan, who was the actually the chancellor of the U New York uh, University system, said to me one day, not knowing me, even said, hey, Mike, did you realize you can do the impossible if you understand timing? And so I believe timing is everything. We live in the right space and time in the history of the world. And if we put energy behind that, it's amazing what happens. So as a CIO, I choose not to let negative energy affect me, whether it's through the voice of uh, faculty some days, or maybe it's the voice of even administration, or it's a voice of myself. How do I take that and remove it and allow the impossible to start forming itself? Now, the old saying that I've inherited was, I don't believe in miracles, I rely on them. Uh, it, it's so true. When you wanna see things happen in this world, in a global, global world, you better hope for some things, pray for some things, believe God for some things, and I believe the rest is history. That's terrific. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, 
you know, there's a lot of things that are required to get innovation in place, right? How do you inspire folks, right, among students and faculty and the community to, to get a lot, to actually drive some of this innovation? Because you've got a lot of smart people around you and in the community. Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. It's back to energy. Do you draw people who want to be innovative? Do you draw people who want to add to your innovation and it starts multiplying exponentially? And I think when, when I meet with students, I may be older than they are, but they've been waiting for me. I always look for the people who say, almost think this, hey, I've been waiting for the day you showed up. And the day I show up is the day they show up. And one thing begats another thing and another thing and another thing. So innovation, uh, the first 16 months out of a three-year period wasn't smooth necessarily. But it's like a sculptor, you know, whittling away, chiseling away at things until finally we have something that resembles success. And so as Bala mentioned, it doesn't hurt to be invited to the White House a few times. It doesn't hurt to win a couple national awards. And when you can bring credibility to the table of innovation, you get people nodding their heads. And, and I, we have the best faculty in the world at Oral Roberts University, bar none. I've been at a lot of campus through my days, and Oral Roberts University has the most supportive faculty. I don't work against them. They don't work against me. We all have the same common vision. Let's help students around the world, not just the students on our campus. Speaking of recognition and uh, being a pioneer and a leader, you're certainly driving augmented reality and virtual reality, yep. and you've been identified as one of the top pioneers in that space in the realm of bringing these technologies to really accelerate the, the, the learning process. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, the work really is when, when you see something that other people can't see, and then you can start manifesting it, it's an incredible day. So I give everybody the example why augmented virtual reality will change things where gamification cannot. Okay, so gamification has been around for a long time, but it's never helped education. But gambling casinos are making a fortune off it. Oh, and yeah. it's simply this. Faculty are not going to change what they believe to be their skill set, which is delivering content. Gamification forces a change or model change to curriculum delivery and development. Augmented reality and virtual reality is a backdrop to that which they're already good at. Allowing students to go to their dorm room or around the world, hold up a card or email like this and bringing 10,000 learning environments to life does not affect faculty. It, augmented virtual reality is the number one thing I've seen in my entire career that literally will transform education. Yeah. No, that is really, really cool. Now, hey, one of these things that you talk about and is about reaching the world by flipping the university. What does that mean? You know, Oral Roberts University has had a slogan for 50 years by Chancellor Oral Roberts himself said, make no little plans here. So students who come on campus, and I brought my daughter to Oral Roberts University in the year 2008 before I knew I would ever work there, and I, that caught my attention. Make no little plans. So everything we think of we can flip a classroom, go to your dorm room, watch a video, go to your dorm room, read something and come back and we'll collaborate, but that's not big enough. What's a bigger plan is to say, how do we learn from the lessons that others failed at, such as no universities are making money overseas by putting more bricks and mortar campuses in. They're losing money and you'll see them, they're shutting down weekly. And so what if we could actually take knowledge and distribute it around the world and let people study around the world, but not pass a four-year degree around the world, pass some knowledge, pass some intelligence, pass some wisdom through augmented virtual reality, through teleportation, through the robots that Vala mentioned earlier. Suddenly, you have flipped your whole university and you can reach the world from one campus. Uh, one classroom can reach an entire 
set of dorms across the campus, but one building called the Global Learning Center that is now complete at Oral Roberts University has allowed us to flip the concept of education. And in fact, uh, Vala mentioned, I believe, I was invited to United Nations to speak on behalf of the concept of nano-sizing education. What if we can constructively deconstruct that which is bucketed as a four-year degree and start disseminating that intelligence so it adds up to a degree? And you'll see shortly, blockchain will play a part in that where you put value to people's life instead yeah. of education to people's life. That will be a game changer for everyone. And so when we can have a vision that thinks about people, a passion for people, all of a sudden the other stuff starts aligning with it. And we're not as concerned with numbers or money. And we've been fortunate, Oral Roberts University is debt free. Uh, we have great donors who believe in what we're doing. We're connected to industry like never before. Uh, we just came home with the 2017 Distance Learning Association Innovation of the Year Award. It's a good time, but again, it's back to what Admiral John Ryan told me. You can do the impossible if you understand the time you live. That is fantastic advice. My final question to you, Michael, advice to a CIOs, advice to CIOs who, are, who have the vision, who have the passion, what, you know, what else do they need to achieve some of the success that you've had? They need to be a risk taker. I will tell you, in three years, I've risked my career at ORU probably five times over. Wow. Uh, but it's it's not because anybody's a bad person. It's because you're willing to say, I believe in something. Sure. I believe in what you said you wanted to do, and I'm here to help deliver. So if you're not a risk taker in a changing world that we live in, good luck. Uh, you can be clever. You can be smart. Uh, but you need to be a risk taker, number one. Number two, align with your president. Align with your executives because they want to win, too. Everyone loves to be aligned to winning. And if you can be a winner, you've got it made. Terrific advice. Terrific. That is awesome. I was gonna. I was looking at when we were doing this interview. I was, I was trying to find the picture of me. And believe it or not, I actually lived in Tulsa as a kid. Of of me, my family, like me, my mom and dad, me being like one year old in the cowboy boots and the prayer tower in the back. I actually have this picture somewhere, and I know because I'm like I remember distinctly. So it's one of those cool things. Ironically enough, Tulsa, the name means the gathering place, the, the official name, you know, hundreds of years ago. And so people from around the world are connected physically, but now digitally. And it's amazing how many people like Ray, we bump into, hey, I remember that prayer tower. I was in Tulsa. It was a crossroads in my life or my father's or mother's life at some point. So that's good to hear, Ray. No, it's pretty wild. And, and thanks for being here. So, hey, we are on with one of the top innovators in terms of not just education, um, but also CIOs, Mike Matthews at Oral Roberts University. You can follow him at Innovate for Edu, E-D-U, um, Oral Roberts, 76 undergraduate majors, 12 graduate programs, two doctoral programs, and more importantly, a very innovative CIO at the helm. So thank you very much thank for being on the show. All right, thank you, Vala. Thank you, Ray. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Scott, as well, and Liz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ray, what an amazing way to spend your Friday afternoon. I mean, talk about three extraordinary thought leaders and, uh, I'll tell you, it's my favorite hour in the week, and, and um, we, I thank everyone who's watching uh, today's show. Next week, we have Braden Kelly, Innovation, Change, and Digital Marketing Strategy uh, uh, at, at Business Strategy Innovation. We have Jeff Gothoff, author of Sense and Response, How Successful Organizations Listen to Customers and Create New Products. And then finally, one of my favorite guests, uh, Heather Clancy, Editorial Director at Green Biz Group. Uh, who's going to be joining us. So please uh, come and see us again next Friday. Yeah, this is going to be great. Episode 63. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks for joining us.
So Thanks, see everybody. Bye-bye.